Morning everyone, I hope you've had a good week. Um, some of you are, will be aware that Anne and I recently had the joy of welcoming our two newest grandchildren, twins, um, to the family um, and had the, the joy of seeing them when they were just a few days old. In fact, we were there the day they were born, um, but um, haven't seen them since and they've just celebrated their third month birthdays. And it just brought home to me that um, the the impact of the lockdown that we're getting at the moment, that, uh, that we're all being affected in, in different ways. Um, the twins are fine, um, but we haven't seen them uh, for most of their lives. Um, and nine weeks into uh, the official lockdown, um, and with uh, a bit of uncertainty ahead, we're not quite sure when we are going to see them. My work colleagues too have been expressing their various frustrations and, and challenges um, as we've talked on a daily basis. And one of them said to me the other day, um, you know what, I've just completely run out of empathy. And I, I get it, I get that we are challenged in our workplaces, in our families, um, in our neighbourhoods um, with this lockdown. And we're in a very similar position. And also in the broader media, there's a lot of talk about emotional and psychological strain, economic strain, relationship strain and, and pressure on our mental health. And sometimes this is expressed as, as boredom or lack of purpose, sometimes more directly as feeling deflated or depressed. And I've had days when I felt just a bit down, not depressed, but uh, just a bit fed up and tired. Um, but for others, there is genuine anxiety about the um, current situation and the implications of coming out of lockdown. I think if we're honest, many of us have both good days and some not such good days, and that's okay. But as we continue to work through our Inspiration in Isolation series in Philippians, we arrive this week at chapter 2 and verse 12, in which Paul's got some really helpful and relevant teaching for us in this current context. Verse 12 starts with a therefore, which is always a big clue to us to read what we're about to read in the context of the preceding section. And if you listened in last week, you'll have heard Philip talking about those previous verses and the example of Jesus' humility, his attitude and example. The importance of becoming more like Jesus, having the mind of Christ and, and that beautiful hymn that Paul cites um, in the middle of the letter highlighting Jesus's humility and his heart to serve. That's the context in which we read this next few verses. So Philippians 2, verse 12 through to verse 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as you did in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you might be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I might be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 
Paul makes three points for us in these few verses that are so helpful in our current context and then gives some practical advice as to how we can apply them. He calls out the challenge of going it alone, the temptation to go with the crowd, and thirdly, the promise that we can shine like stars. So firstly, in Paul, verse 12, Paul acknowledges the challenge that the Philippians were facing now that he was no longer with them. Therefore, my beloved, he says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as you did in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This comes out of Paul's love for them as a church um, and not from his in, any sense of his own indispensability. What, when he was with them, he could encourage and build them up, but also remind them as to how to conduct themselves. They'd always followed his advice, but Paul was encouraging to keep on obeying, even more so in my absence, he said. He was willing them to keep on running the race, keep on pursuing the goal that was set before them. He was encouraging them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Note though, it's not work for your salvation. We are saved by grace. There's nothing more that we need to do once we've accepted Jesus as our saviour or to earn God's favour. Nor was he saying, work your salvation out. We know the truth of the gospel. We know holding fast to the word of life, as, as this, these verses say, um, we, we have a clear sense of what the gospel of Jesus is. But what he is saying is in the light of Jesus' example of humility and service, in the light of God's holiness and desire for a holy people, he was saying, now I'm not with you. I long to see the fruit of the gospel evident in the way that you're living your lives. For us at King's Church, and indeed for the wider global church, there's a clear parallel for us. We're just not able to be together in the same way as we were a few weeks ago. Now look, virtual church is so, so helpful. We can still enjoy worshipping together. We can gather to pray. We can enjoy friendship and work on the application of the word of God through our life groups. And we've so enjoyed the prayer course over recent weeks and, and working that through together. And I have to say the love that comes over from Philip and the eldership team just to see the church flourishing and thrive at this time has been so tangible. But let's be honest, it's not the same, is it? We're not able to encourage one another face to face. It's easier to hide how we're really doing. It's harder to be accountable to one another. And it's less obvious if we don't engage in worship or prayer and so on. And for many of us, it's probably harder to engage through yet another Zoom call anyway. So yes, it is a challenge. We have to work a bit harder, not to understand our salvation and certainly not to earn our salvation, but to live out our salvation in a way that honours God when no one is looking. But we are encouraged. Paul says, it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And earlier in the letter, he asserts, I'm confident of this thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. 
And of course, nothing has changed in that statement. So while the church in isolation might be challenging for us, it's definitely not lacking in help or in hope. Paul's second point is to warn the church at Philippi of the temptation to go with the crowds. In other words, be careful not that you're not being distinctive or living differently or having different attitudes from anyone else around you. The specifics that Paul is highlighting in verse 14 are grumbling and disputing. And there's both an allusion back to the grumbling and complaining of the Israelites in the desert, despite God's deliverance and provision, as well as the lack of distinctive behaviours that the church was displaying at the time, despite the fact that they were rooted in their common belief and benefit from the gospel of Jesus. He's coming back to the theme that he introduced right at the beginning of the letter. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I might hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now Paul was referring to the behaviour of the church towards one another as they did life together. But we can equally apply this to our life apart when we apply it to our individual attitudes and behaviours as we work out our salvation in isolation from one another. Now, in this current context, it is really easy, isn't it, to, to, to grumble and to criticise. Everyone's doing it, whether it's work colleagues, neighbours, the news media or social media, which is the worst at it. We're criticising our government, our employers, our employees, those that are flouting social distancing rules, those that are perhaps being overzealous at implementing social distancing rules. It goes on. And, and of course, let's guard our hearts as a church as we begin to come out of isolation over coming weeks and months, and specifically not to allow even a hint of grumbling and complaining against our eldership team or ministry leads or life group leaders as they work out how to do church together again. Inevitably, what we decide is going to be too fast for some and not fast enough for others. Some of us will want to remain more socially distanced than others. And we might need to test and learn a bit to get it right for everyone over coming weeks. So let's just watch our hearts and our attitudes as we go through this time. But what about considering this more broadly, not just our outward expression in grumbling and criticising, but in our underlying attitudes and beliefs? Many people around us are anxious, frightened, fearful, and have no hope, or they're trying to find someone to blame. Another colleague of mine um, surprised me recently. He's a very confident, outward-going individual, but said that he won't go out at all at the moment because he's concerned about both infection and confronting people who come too close. He's really, this situation has really caused him to close in on himself in, in fear at the end of the day. And I wonder what sometimes whether you find yourself being sucked into the same attitude as those around you. Now look, I'm not being flippant or unrealistic. The current situation is really impacting us, whether it's on our own or our family's health, whether it's employment concerns, finances, 
disappointment of things that we hoped we would have done by now and haven't had a chance to because of the, the, the lockdown. Really missing your grandchildren like we are or nephews or nieces or parents. The list goes on. It is impacting us. And neither am I saying that there's no place for challenging and questioning those in authority and decisions that are made in our best interests. But I do wonder whether we are firstly prayerful and full of grace towards people and situations. Are we demonstrating patience, kindness, gentleness, forbearance and self-control? all of which are the fruit of a spirit-transformed soul. Can we demonstrate that we are different through our attitudes towards one another and towards our leaders? Maybe these thoughts can fuel our personal and our corporate prayer in coming days. Peter challenges us in 1, 1 Peter uh, as to whether we reflect something of the hope that's in us, being prepared to account for that hope. And Paul himself in Ephesians 4 says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is sometimes a real pull for us to go with the crowd, to adopt a secular worldview rather than being countercultural and living with a biblical and a spirit-filled perspective at these times. And that brings me to Paul's final point, which is an encouragement to be different, to stand up and be counted. In verse 15, he says uh, that you might be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Or as the NIV puts it, that you will shine like stars in the sky. I really like that example. If you've ever been outside on a dark night, particularly if you're in an area where there's very little other light pollution, and look up at the, the stars and see the brilliance of those stars and the contrast between the brightness of that light and the darkness of the surrounding sky around them, you'll see something of the illustration that Paul was trying to make here, that there is such a contrast between that brightness and the darkness that it shines through. Paul says that we will shine in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. But they're harsh words, aren't they? Am I saying that everyone around us is crooked and twisted? Well, at some level, no, of course not. There's a lot of self-sacrifice, kindness, compassion, and generosity being demonstrated by many people around us right now. But at another level, at the level of people's worldview that there is no God, that there is no hope, that there is no ultimate consequence of living a life that doesn't acknowledge Jesus, then yes, by those standards, by biblical standards, by God's standards, I am saying that we're living in a twisted and crooked generation, a generation that is in darkness. 
Paul's encouragement to the church in Philippi was that they could be lights to their generation and their context. And my encouragement to each of us is that we can be lights in our generation. We can shine like stars in our generation and in today's context. But the question, of course, is how on earth do I do that? So let me try and land this in a practical way by drawing on a few final points that Paul makes in these verses. Firstly, though, just a little illustration that I hope will help. Here's a light bulb. This light bulb was manufactured to give light. It was made for the sole purpose of enlightening the situation that it found itself in. But right now, as you can see, not a lot of light coming out of this light bulb. So I'm going to put it in the right context. I'm going to put it in a context where it could shine. It's in a lampstand. It's in now a perfect place where um, it could shine and, and give light around it. But I'm still not getting anything. Nothing's happening. No light is coming from this light in this lampstand. And there's a good reason for that. That's because it's not plugged in yet. So let me plug it in. And straight away, we find there's a light that is doing what it was made for, which is shining and bringing a bit of light around it. Let's just move that to one side for now. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 verses 14 to 16, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So let's look at the passage we've been in. Verse 13. Firstly, know the truth that God is at work in you by the Holy Spirit. This is not about gritting our teeth and hoping that we'll produce a bit of light, but recognising that unless we are plugged into God and allow him to transform us inwardly, then we cannot shine. The shining like stars, the being lights, is a consequence of what God is doing in us by his spirit. It's a consequence of inward transformation. But practically, it does mean giving him time to transform us by spending time with him and being open to or yielding to the counsel of the Holy Spirit. Not only is, is it about listening to what God is saying to us, but it's about doing something about that. Then Paul says in verse 16, hold fast to the word of life. Now, Jesus is the word of God and, of course, the light of the world. So what this is saying to us is abide in him. Get to know Jesus. Get to delight in him. As we get to know Jesus, we are transformed to be more like Jesus. But it takes time. Are we making time to rest with him? The, the prayer course, again, that many of us have done over recent weeks talked about the importance and the benefit of silence and contemplation. Are we using some of that time just to allow God to get close to us, to reflect on the beauty of Jesus? Some of the verses that Philip shared with us last week, just to understand a bit more about him and who he is and wonder 
um, in the joy of just that of that relationship. And of course, we also have the word of God, the Bible, which is such a rich source of truth to remind us of how to work out our salvation. So let's make sure that we're also feeding ourselves with that, uh, the, the, the truth of the word, making time on a regular basis, daily if you can, but regularly getting into the word of God and allowing the spirit to transform you as you meditate and dwell on the, on the Bible. And then the third practical thing that Paul brings to us is in verse 18. He says, rejoice, delight, be thankful in who God is. In Jesus' example of humility and service, at what God has done through Jesus in bringing us into relationship with him and for what he continues to do in our own lives and in the life of our church and the church globally. But again, let's be practical and intentional about this. What helps you worship? What helps you rejoice in God? It might be playing music. It might be reading the Psalms. It might be going for walks and just enjoying nature and God's creation. It might be expressing yourself through art in some creative, some other creative way, making music. Who knows, it's different for each of us, but we're all called to be a people that rejoice in God and enjoy God. That's our high calling. Let's make sure we give ourselves time and we're intentional about doing that. So our response now is to live in the promise that as we rest in him, as we grow in our walk with him, that we can and that we will shine like stars in the generation around us. That we can be a light to those in this, uh, next to us that we encounter in this generation. <laughs>